S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 13, starring Fran Parkinson. Originally aired on January 29th, 1977. Hello, thousands. My name is Keith. Welcome to SN Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live. We started in Season 1, Episode 1, and we're going until we uh, we, we pass away. Like, subscribe, share, and uh, comment if you are so inclined. With me, as always, is my good buddy and always co-host, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, Keith. Are you okay that I appropriated your thousands term? Absolutely. All right. Very good. I, I appreciate that. I, I didn't want it to become a trademark thing. That could uh, <laughs> that could end a friendship and a podcast. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> and we're gone back to one of our favorite wells again and brought uh, back for this episode someone who's probably our second most prolific third chair. It's been a while since we've seen him, but it is Mark. Hello, Mark. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Thank you. You were away on assignment, I believe, wasn't it? That's right. You had the double header, right? The Steve Martin and then Buck Henry. So we figured we put you on ice for a couple weeks. Yeah, it's, it's good. Gave me time to heal up and fix some of these injuries. I've been the nagging injuries that have been getting to me through the season. <laughs> How appropriate, because tonight's host is Fran Tarkenton, who at the time was the quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings, and they had just lost the Super Bowl. Tarkenton played from 61 to 78 in the NFL. Huge name, probably one of the top sports celebrities uh, of, of his time. It's a name I've heard many times, but not somebody I have any knowledge or relationship with. I don't know anything about this guy. I never heard of him until this show. I am in a similar boat. All news to me, but pleasant surprise. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, now, Matt, um, this is our first athlete to host. You don't like when it's not a performer. How were you sitting on the thought of an athlete coming in? I mean, I don't like it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's the same deal. I don't think these people are a good fit for this uh, particular position. I understand why the show slash the network would want them, uh, capitalize on popularity and whatnot. My opinion thus far has been that uh, it drags down the quality of the show. So we'll see if we can make some turnarounds here. So uh, let's get right to the show. Uh, the musical guest, of course, tonight is Leo Sayer. We'll talk about him in a little bit. It starts backstage, and the backstage is done up in sort of a locker room setting with the cast and writers. Uh, the only writers I could see at this point were Franken and Davis. Uh, they're all in football uniforms. And Belushi's playing a coach, and he's at a blackboard giving the team a pregame pep talk. Fran Tarkenton is there himself. He has a few questions about forgetting the first joke of his monologue. Um, they've done up a little map of Studio 8H on the playboard, which was a nice touch. So basically, this is Belushi and the cast playing a sort of football team, but he's referring to the show as basically the game, like they do in football movies and sport movies and all that sort of stuff. They do a team huddle, and then they run out of the backstage into the studio, where the floor is painted like a football gridiron, which was a nice touch. They do an all-hands-in, they break, and then the whole group does live from New York at Saturday night. I'm not a football fan. I'll get that out right away. I love the energy in this, and at this point, this football bit was, was working for me. However, it will go on to become quite annoying. 
having seen sports movies with the big speech from the coach, I, I knew what they were going for. And I thought it was okay, but I really wasn't blown away by this 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 opening. And it might be just because I don't like football too much. I thought it was a pretty good opening to the show myself. Uh, I, I sounds like I enjoyed it more than you did. Uh, Jane popping off really caught me off guard. That was a nice moment when she stood up for her little scream. I really thought it was cool that they all yelled live from New York. It's Saturday night. Fran did an okay job playing himself. He didn't have anything to do. He was uh, he just <laughs> stood there. And I, th- I thought Belushi was funny. Yeah, I I, uh, I liked the whole thing pretty much. Yeah, it felt like a bit of a, a gimme, like an on a little on the nose, but also. Like, you got to get it over with is kind of what I was feeling. So uh, I gave it a little more slack than it. it sounds like you maybe did, Keith. I haven't been a football fan in a long time, but once upon a time I was. I really also enjoyed when, when Jane jumped in there. And, uh, yeah, it brought a really good energy to kick things off. It came in really hyped up. And uh, the whole cast getting to do uh, Live from New York, it, it felt like a really good way to kick things off, as it were. And uh, yeah, they seemed like they were having fun with it, too. And I think that, that translated. So we now go to the monologue. Fran Tarkenton comes out to home base, and it's painted to look like the 50-yard line. Tarkenton makes a few self-deprecating jokes about losing the Super Bowl. And he promises that he'll be in the Super Bowl again the next year and lose again. He said he's going to sing a song, and he starts singing Feelings. The camera cuts over to Belushi, who's standing at the sideline set, where where they did the Live from New York. And Belushi's not looking happy. Bill Murray pops up in an inset as uh, sports reporter Lee Whitehead. He makes commentary as John Belushi swaps out Fran Tarkenton for the much better singer, Garrett Morris. So Morris goes in and finishes the feelings bit as uh, Targenton goes off to the sidelines. To me, this was uh, this was actually fairly funny. I got some some laughs out of Targenton's sort of self-deprecating humor, the fact that uh, you don't get that all the time from athletes. And then, of course, to hear Garrett sing was... Uh, this was actually a pretty good idea. At this point, I was still happy with the, the running football gag throughout the whole episode. Yeah, I liked how they uh, they tied it into the cold open. The just sort of felt like it flowed straight out of that, and they were almost continuing a bit. And yeah, I think for you know someone who isn't uh, trained as a entertainer, Tarkenton did a pretty good job. And I feel like they built this whole thing well around him, having all the outside bits, having the the Bill Murray inset, and the running gag of Garrett being such a talented singer, being called in as the ringer at the end. I thought this was uh, quite good, and I had some really good laughs, and it was really refreshing to see how open to poking fun at himself and how not so self-serious Tarkenton was to kick things off. Made me relax a little bit for what was to come. Pretty fun segment, I thought. I really liked the not-ready-for-prime-time players in it. Belushi kills that coach role. I really enjoy him in it. Always like to see Garrett getting something to do, whatever it is, uh, especially if it's singing voice of an angel and bill murray was hilarious as in the inset as uh whitehead you know he, he's bringing an element to the show i think that has not been there before when, when he's getting screen time so far i got a bad feeling about the personality of this guy though he thought he had the charisma of a wet sponge it was not, <laughs> uh, it was an inauspicious start for the quarterback and the wet sponge that's actually the best thing you've said about any of these non-performers so far so it's not too bad <laughs> better than a dry sponge at least you can do something with it and i mean to your point a little bit mark yeah, I, do, yeah. I do like the idea that uh, the, the show seems to be definitely making the effort to to work the show around him uh, which they don't do for all the hosts sometimes it's just really obvious that they have no 
friggin' clue what to do with the host. Uh, and that's definitely not the case here. So we go to a commercial for the Swiss Army Gun. And this is Dan Aykroyd doing his Ravco shill. The Swiss Army Gun, it's a giant Swiss Army knife. It has a, a 38 caliber revolver and a semi-automatic carbine and a rocket launcher. And uh, it's about, what, about three feet long? It's just a huge Swiss Army knife that has all the regular accoutrements of, of, of a, a Swiss Army knife, along with uh, some firearms in there. Aykroyd was great doing his shtick. The prop is what made the difference for me here, that giant friggin' Swiss Army knife. I, I laughed at this. I really liked it. There was something off, and it looked like the prop was falling apart, but uh, but I really enjoyed this. Yeah, it felt a little slower to me than his usual shtick when he's doing these like fast-talking salesman sort of things, but uh, I think it worked because he was so clearly fumbling with this massive, unwieldy prop. And, like, just kind of leaned into that. And, yeah, it was just uh, a nice, goofy little bit of fun. I enjoyed it. I thought he got those first few components out okay. He he definitely at least tried it once backstage. He he knew where, you know, certain things were maybe. But, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. His handling of it was pretty roughshod, too. I guess he's a fast-talking guy, so he's got to be fast with the equipment. That was pretty cool. Our next bit is Amy Carter goes to school, or Amy goes to school. So Jane Curtin is a teacher. I noticed in the back, Ann Beats is wearing pretty much a blue version of the clothes that Kristen Wiig will later wear as Gilly, which I thought was kind of funny. So the door opens, and Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray come in as Secret Service agents, and they're escorting Amy Carter, played by Lorraine Newman. Jane Curtin welcomes Amy and starts a test. The Secret Service agents realize that uh, Amy Carter is making some mistakes, and they help her cheat. Gilda catches Amy Carter cheating. Amy and Gilda start arguing, and Bill Murray pushes Gilda into a desk. This actually looked harder than it should have been. The teacher asks a question about the revolution of 1834, and the Secret Service agents who aren't smart enough to help Amy out sidle out of the classroom as they don't know the answer. This was funny. I mean, it was definitely topical. The Carters and I think Teddy Roosevelt were the only presidents to send their kids to public school. It was a big deal at the time, and a couple of a couple of jokes in there I enjoyed. I, I enjoyed the performances maybe more than I enjoyed the material. I think that's a pretty fair assessment about the performances versus the material. Those two Secret Service guys were cracking me up, especially when they railed her into the desk. Holy shit, that was funny. Gilda was so great. <laughs> She's always good as children. I thought it was pretty good. I guess you're right. There wasn't a ton of jokes. I, I did. I was thinking like, of course they can hear them giving her the answers. <laughs> I'm totally with you guys. The the performances really carried this one from the way like right out of the gate, the way they're like Dan and, and Bill were, were like backing around and twirling and looking all over the place and just had this real goofy, bouncy, charismatic energy to get things rolling. And when they stuffed Gilda in that desk, I laughed so hard. I had to pause for one second just so I didn't miss what came next. Because it was just so unexpected and so sharp and, and, and jagged the way they drove her in there. I'm just realizing now that the material was as weak as it was because I was so into the performances. So I, I really enjoyed this for what it was. And maybe that's the point. Like, if the performances are good, the material doesn't have to be stellar. You know what I mean? Like, it, this worked. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is my, my first time with Bill Murray being on screen for SNL. He's got such a bouncy, loose charisma that I found just even when he didn't have that much to say or do, just the way he moves is, is entertaining, you know? Yeah. So now we go to the sidelines. And for this one, this is uh, writer Jim Downey's on-screen debut. 
and Alan's Y Bell's there as well. But uh, the, the main story is Dan Aykroyd comes off the field and tells Coach Belushi that some guy tore off his arm. Belushi says Aykroyd isn't tough. Garrett actually comes in with the arm and he gives the arm to Belushi. And, uh, Belushi and Bill Murray, who's playing a, a coach, uh, tape the arm back on. This was fun, but I, I'm going to tire very quickly of these at the sidelines and the football stuff. This was silly enough for, for me to give it a pass. Certainly, Garrett coming in with the arm. That was good stuff. I, I, I appreciate the strange violence. Yeah, and uh, Belushi as the coach being so, like, over the top, like, what are you being a pussy for? You know, <laughs> it was like, it was a good <laughs> lampooning of that, like, hyper masculine thing for, for the date and time of it all. And yeah, I just thought this was goofy and I definitely had the thought at this point, like, I hope this is wrapping up the football segment of the thing because we've, we've hit three times in, in what, we're four or five segments in and we've, we've already gone to that. But for the segment itself, I, I thought it was, it was great for what it was. So uh, we go to the music, uh, musical bio here. We have Leo Sayer, British born singer, songwriter. His fourth album, Endless Flight, came out in late 76, went platinum in both the U.S. and U.K., but went double platinum in Canada. The first song is When I Needed You, released in February 77. Okay, this song, he did it well, but this is not my style. This is bubblegum, weak guy pop, overflowing with like sensitivity. Uh, I was listening to the lyrics, because I'm a lyric guy, I've mentioned that. And the song feels to me like a conversation I really shouldn't be privy to. <laughs> and I also thought to Jerry Seinfeld's thing in the Jimmy episode where he says, you know, I can't watch, I can't watch a man sing a song. They get all emotional. They sway. It's embarrassing. So that's kind of where I was at with this song. Yeah, it was certainly competently performed, but outside of that, not my cup of tea. I think I've brought this up in previous episodes. It really grinds my gears sometimes when you have this huge high energy start and, and everything's firing on all cylinders and they're just going really hard. And then you just slam into this brick wall of momentum into this like sappy ballad. I don't understand why they want to do this like maybe they're trying to slow down the pace to ease into the middle portion of the show but it just feels so jarring to go from like a guy getting his arm ripped off and everyone yelling like they're on a football team to suddenly you know this sappy i should be slow dancing in a gym and type music uh just not my cup of tea leo sayer sucks this song sucks the uh, performance was shitty. He looks like a fucking idiot out there on the stage. <laughs> this, this was so stupid. Saturday Night Live <laughs> often misses the mark with music for me. I mean, sure, the guy's got a record in the charts. Does that make him a good fit for your show? With an NFL quarterback hosting, by the way. Mm, yeah, good, good, good thing you brought in this little Brit. I hated it. Start to finish. This is the kind of talent that the MTV generation is going to come along and destroy very shortly. So we now go to Black Perspective. Garrett hosts again with uh, his guest, Fran Tarkenton. And Tarkenton mentions that he's the uh, chairman of the NFL Committee on Race Relations since uh, 1971. Garrett says that uh, blacks in football have come a long way, but some stereotypes still remain. Tarkenton denies this and says he doesn't uh, he isn't aware of any. Garrett asks him why there's only three quarterbacks who are black and they are not starters. They sit on the sidelines. 
Tarkenton gives a bunch of racist reasons why. At first, Garrett seems to be put off uh, by this, but then he starts to see things Tarkenton's way. This is one that I can see where the humor is, and I can see audiences getting some laughs out of this, but uh, this it wasn't for me for, for a bunch of reasons. I got a chuckle out of Fran coming out as an unabashed racist on Black Perspective. It made me laugh. But, I mean, racism in the NFL, of course, it continues to be a huge problem. It still caught me off guard and made me laugh in the sketch. Yeah, the unexpected when he was like, when, when Garrett's like, so what about these myths? And he's like, oh, they're not myths, they're all true. I sat up and, like, gave, like, a, a startled laugh, like, totally unexpected for it to go that way. And I'd like to give Tankerton some some credit for having the balls to come out back in the day and be involved in a sketch that's holding the NFL to to account for being a, a super successful white quarterback in 1978. He's, he's, you know, saying some shit that his bosses probably weren't too happy about on national TV. Yeah, I thought that was that was pretty cool of him. I liked how Garrett, just for the, the sketch, I liked how Garrett sort of played it off near the end. I, I thought it was, was a, another clever subversion. It, it was nice to see him, him leading a sketch like this. Our next sketch is uh, <laughs> the Alsatian Restaurant. So Bill and Jane play a couple. They're eating at a fancy home of uh, two characters played by Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner. They're uh, French, Al- Alsatian French people who open their homes for dinner parties. Basically, you go to these people's house, they, they cook you a fancy French meal, and uh, and you enjoy it just like a restaurant. So Aykroyd comes in as the waiter chef, and he gives the fancy menu, and he says the soup is filled was made from tomato and leeks. Gilda, his wife, interrupts him and says the tomatoes aren't so fresh, and they get into a little bit of an argument, but uh, nothing too serious, until they go into the kitchen, and uh, things get violent in the kitchen. As they're in the kitchen, they get their daughter Francine, played by Lorraine, to play on the recorder for them. It's uh, It's a tough one to explain, as you can probably tell by now. Um, this is another one. The material wasn't great. The performances were awesome. Uh, I, I don't know. There was something missing that would have made this totally great. Love the performances. Yeah, I found this one took too long getting going. It was like really slow on the front end. I was laughing pretty hard on the, the back end when I, when I got to the absolute cacophony of them screaming and pans smashing and, and glass shattering while Lorraine is just butchering that instrument, Jane and Dana, or Bill, sorry, are trying to enjoy their, their fancy nice meal. I found the, the energy as it picked up and when it finally resulted in, in the big stab at the end. And then, like, Bill pulls the check off the knife and looks and then turns to Jane's like, oh, look at that. That's awfully reasonable. I thought that was a perfect finish. But it did take a while to get going and something did feel like a little off. Like, this needed uh, one more go over on the script before it got onto the stage. Gosh, you're right about the performances. Uh, I thought everybody was fantastic. This reminded me of Faulty Towers for very obvious reasons. Uh, But I I did think Dan and Gilda especially were great in their anger, especially when Dan came out and his hair is a mess and the T-shirt's untucked and he's still trying to keep it together. Yeah, performances lifted this into a hit for me. I found myself laughing. All right, and the next bit is a a commercial sketch. It's for anabolic steroids, a breakfast cereal. Um, it's just Fran Tarkenton saying how he basically stays healthy, and it's his breakfast cereal is a sugar-coated anabolic steroids. 
he talks about uh, all the stuff they do. I believe he says they'll they'll turn your grapes into raisins, um, which is one joke I kind of chuckled at. The money shot, though, is the camera pans out as Fran Tarkenton introduces his wife, who's played by Jane Curtin, and she's there with a beard. And uh, then the son, or I think it's the son, they pan out and show a little boy there who also has a beard. As a as somebody who's followed anabolic steroids news as a wrestling fan since I was about eight years old, I uh, I really enjoyed this. I laughed at this really hard. And then the reveal of Jane as a demure housewife with a with a goat beard, I just I fucking I lost it. I was on the floor almost laughing at this one. Yeah, this one nailed it for me. Uh, right out of the gate, uh, I could see Tarkenton was having fun with it. Like there was one point he almost broke. I think it was when he had to say that it'll turn your grapes into raisins, and then like a chuckle started creeping out, and he he was struggling to get himself back on track. And then yeah, when it pulls back, and and Jane just making the best face to with that big stupid fake beard she had on. I I really enjoyed this. Really good material here. I agree with you guys. Uh, I don't even have too much to add uh, except to reiterate that they're doing a really good job for the most part so far of working with the host. And you know, they they've written some good stuff for him. There there's a concerted effort like let's let's try to get this one. You know, it's been a little hit and miss. They definitely got it right this time. So we go to an audience, Chiron, and this person flunked body language. So then we're off to weekend update. And uh, Jane reads a letter from a fan who misses Chevy because he was so sexy. Jane says she's been getting letters, and the network is are pushing for Lauren to replace her because she's not sexy like Chevy was. In a very indignant manner, she says she thought the world wanted responsible journalism, but obviously she was wrong. She responds by ripping her shirt open and exposing her bra and says, try these on for size, Connie Chung. And I wrote, Matt smiles. So normally we take a break at the ad, but uh, this was a, this is kind of an iconic moment for Jane. Um, it's probably the point in time where she really, you know, takes over Weekend Update from the standpoint of like, she definitely left Chevy in the dust now for a lot of people. What do you guys, uh, what do you guys think of this one? Hello, Jane. This was... Uh... I loved it. I thought it was ballsy. I thought it was really on the nose. Some very pertinent writing. I'm sure that these exact things are being said about her. She's better than Chevy Chase. She's funnier at this than Chase was. Keith, you said it best. It was about Chevy when Chevy was on it, but when Jane's on it, it's more about the material. But uh, this was really cool to see her putting her foot down about the whole thing. And she's absolutely sexier than Chevy Chase. I was kind of hoping when she got to the end of the letter, she was going to say, sincerely yours, Chevy Chase. I was hoping that was going to be the joke. (laughs) But outside of that, I think this was a really bold, smart move by Jane to just like stomp on any kind of doubts or or haters or whatever you want to call it uh, and just come out guns a blazing. It was super unexpected. And as soon as it happened, my first instinct was a big laugh and then a big smile. And then I double thought Matt is in heaven right now. So then I got even happier. (laughs) And it just made me enjoy it that much more. I thought this was fantastic. So there's just a couple of jokes here. I noted in the first half, Jane does a setup that results in the line, a witch's breast is no colder than the average breast. I think that's a play on the old cold as a witch's teeth line. There's a talk about cruise missiles, and then they show some test footage from these new cruise missiles, which is an old silent movie of people running from a cannonball. And then we go to an 
ad, and it starts with a clip of Fran Tarkenton fumbling a ball. And then he introduces John Belushi, whose mind was destroyed by drugs, and people's donations have helped restore his mental state. Belushi's dressed as a Boy Scout. He says he wakes up, he gets a shot, he goes on a special bus, he goes to a park with rubber walls. Tarkenton says, uh, thank you. I kind of know what they were going for, but it wasn't well done. It was kind of stupid. And if it's making fun of, like, charities for sick kids, I, I don't know what, I don't want to read too much into it. Um, and as well, any reference to Belushi being destroyed by drugs does have that sort of yuck factor. I really liked the couple of jokes. Uh, Jane had this little, like, double take when she's reading from the script where she almost said, which is tit and then stopped herself and, and, and switched to breast and had this coy little like, Ooh, moment. And I thought her timing was fantastic on that. And the, the slapstick of the, the, the black and white movie, the, the people getting chased by the, the, the fake cruise missile. I had a really good laugh at that. I think the start of this ad is fun. Like it, it cuts from Tarkington getting sacked to saying that wasn't a great moment for me and then cutting into making fun of Belushi for his drugs. Them making fun of themselves, I thought was good. But yeah, in light of what we know now transpires, it does make it a little uncomfortable. And the fact that it definitely seemed to be alluding to like kids with special needs as the joke, it got real uncomfortable at the end of it. Yeah, I also thought Jane wanted to say tit. Big yikes to this Belushi bit, where he's doing an impersonation of a mentally challenged person and talking about how drugs destroy his life. Like, holy shit. I mean, you, you really can't, aside from, I'm Keith, you already kind of summed it up, but I mean anything where john is joking about drugs ruining his life like there's there's an uncomfortable bit of reality to what's going on here i'm the year is 1977 the show is a hit 1977 is a huge year culturally too disco is really taking off and punk is really finding its roots where it does and everybody's starting to cash in on disco and belushi's being photographed at studio 54 and uh he's at the top right now but it's you know, he's going to start his decline uh, in the, the next coming years. And I mean, this is just sucks to, to hear him joke about it now when it, when it's really going to take over his life. And I mean, come on, y you can't pretend you're a mentally challenged person on TV. You just can't do it. I should have mentioned in the first part, uh, Jane's doing this running gag where she stops and looks at the camera and, and is briefly seductive or, or being sexy. And that's uh, that's actually the highlight of Weekend Update. The only joke I have from the second half is that Alex Haley made a mistake when he was researching Roots, and he was only, in reality, able to trace himself back to the uh, 1930s group, the Ink Spots. Nothing in the second half for you guys? Nothing in particular. I didn't think it was when a joke kind of fell flat that Jane flashed out the blazer a little. Uh, that, that was a really cool joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, her, her mugging really carries the back end of it. Just uh, She was just playing with it and having so much fun. Uh, but yeah, none, none of the, the jokes really stood out. And after the uncomfortable end of that ad, like you could feel sort of a little bit of momentum loss. Our next sketch is Alice, and it features Fran Tarkenton and Lorraine Newman. So Tarkenton is taking Lorraine back to his room, and he obviously wants to get her in the sack, but she just keeps talking. So Tarkenton calls for a timeout and a nice 
appearance here by stage manager Joe Disco as a referee. Tarkenton goes to the sidelines as Bill Murray does some more sideline commentary. Tarkenton needs advice. So he then goes back into the room, back into the set, takes his shirt off, lays in bed, and asks uh, Lorraine to come up too. And she just keeps talking. So then Tarkenton puts on some music, which is Bob Dylan's Lay Lady Lay. And that doesn't work either, so Tarkenton walks off again. He needs to get advice from uh, Coach Belushi, and he gets a little bit, and then he returns in and uh, almost gets uh, Lorraine to make out with him when the clock runs out and everyone runs off stage. I'm, I'm, go- I'm about to go down a rabbit hole here. This sketch confused me. It's, it's, it's a bit about, like, universe building, I suppose. So Tarkenton is getting advice for his character in the sketch, or is he getting advice for himself as an actor of how to play it? Or is it Fran Tarkenton just wanting to make out with Lorraine Newman? Like, based on the, the guidelines that were set earlier in the show, they're, they're, they're the characters controlling the show. It seems that this betrays that. I just got completely lost. My head was basically spinning with this one. It's just really weird. This is all very strange, totally fanboy nitpicking here. But I thought Lorraine was good. I thought Tarkenton was funny, but I just couldn't get my head around what this sketch was. I took it as though Tarkenton himself in in real life is trying to pick up this woman from a bar. And when he's unsuccessful at getting her to make out with him... He needs to go to his coach for tips on how to be a better ladies' man. That's kind of how I took it. And I feel like a sketch like this would read really poorly nowadays because he's just trying to score. And they kept bringing up that he was trying to score. And I think Lorraine's performance was was a lot of fun. Like she plays that, that dizzy, weird talking about all sorts of random crap, slightly annoying, but thinks she's super hot girl well. But I feel like this was just Tarkenton trying to get laid and going to his coach because he couldn't pull it off. Uh, it's, it's interesting to hear the perspectives from you guys. You guys definitely thought about it on levels of S and Hell uh, that I did not. You know how in wrestling when a, when a bad guy is really good at being bad, that you do boo him and you're like, oh, he really, he's really good at making me hate him. Uh, that was Lorraine for me in this sketch. Like, you know, we've, we've met, maybe not all of us, but you know, you, you meet that woman in your life and then you see her on TV and you still don't like her. And, uh, I, I was distracted by my distaste for her and her gabbiness. The, the stuff with Belushi and Fran, I just, I couldn't make, I thought, I assumed it was about the show. I wasn't really trying to make heads or tails of it, though, to be honest, because as soon as it started, I became exasperated with them doing it again. The depth to which maybe I was supposed to understand it as either comedy or commentary or whatever uh, just went out the window. I was just like, you fuckers don't have another idea. Yeah. It felt pretty flat. I, I do have to say your your comparison of Lorraine as such a good heel that you admire how much you hate her is perfect. <laughs> so now we go to Grandstand, and uh, it's just Bill Murray, and uh, he's playing Lee Whitehead again, but he's brought in Brian Gumbo, and these, of course, are parodies of Lee Leonard and Brian Gumbo. They immediately throw to commercial, and the commercial is uh, a parody of a Wrigley's ad, and this originally actually aired in season one. Um, it, it aired during the Rob Reiner episode. But in, in all reruns that I know of and the, like the DVD collections and stuff, it's not included. The thing that really jumped out at me is it's only a year before and production values are such that that sketch at the funeral home 
for the Wrigley's ad looks like it's about 10 years old, 15 years old at that point. We hadn't seen this before. And even though it's kind of a rerun, uh, what were your thoughts? I thought it was cute. I I, uh, I did notice that the it's like when you look at live sports from two years ago and it looks like they're from the 70s. There, there was a, a massive degradation in quality. But but I still think the sketch is cute. Yeah, I was uh, a little confused as to why it looked like such crap. But now that you've, you've explained it, it makes sense. And I thought it was just like a perfect little visual joke. You know, this is the mm-hmm. kind of thing that doesn't always work in, in other mediums. But but for, for TV, I thought it was a, a perfect, cute little, ha-ha, and then we move on, you know? Yeah, yeah. So then it goes back to Grandstand, and uh, they try to interview Fran Tarkenton, but there's audio problems. They throw to what is on ABC, and it's a clip of an old movie musical. And then the uh, White Plains Marching Band plays their tribute to non-white blind composers as they form a pair of sunglasses, and they start playing Sunshine of My Life by Stevie Wonder. And then they go through some clips of the show and give some, some comments with Fran Tarkenton joining them. This was kind of like the, uh, you know, intermission halftime show type thing they do with interviews and entertainment. I didn't like this at all. I thought this was dead air, really. It uh, didn't work for me at all. There were two moments that I'll give little nods to. I thought them trying to interview Tarkenton and his audio not working and him just having like the goofy all-American sports boy smile while he's just staring blankly into the camera for a couple of segments before they bounce different things. I thought that was a little bit funny because you see that happen when you're watching live sports. And I thought them taking shots at ABC by being like, you know, we got this fresh hip comedy show that we're doing live. And here's what our competitors showed. And it's just some like cheesy old black and white stuff. I, I thought that was all right. But outside of that, I'm over the sports theme. I thought there was a lot of bad attempts at sports jokes when they finally do get to interviewing Tarkenton too he makes a takes a shot at another quarterback who I think just had retired recently and had some words for him and he makes a gay joke about him and he got like a full-on boo from parts of the audience come on now guys come up with something like can't we make this guy be a, a waiter or a construction worker or something in some other kind of sketch jeez I mean really the kind of jobs that he's qualified for as a uh, an NFL quarterback, what else the hell are you going to do? A classless line from him, you're right, uh, about that other quarterback. This coming from the guy who just lost the big game. I mean, stop walking around like your shit doesn't stink. You're, you're officially a national loser, and now you're on national television joking about the fact that you blew it. So, you know, you don't get to make fun of other people. And speaking of not getting to make fun of other people, the musical guest tonight is Leo fucking Sayer. Don't you joke about what's on ABC right now and how it's uncool. Not a leg to stand on. (laughs) I I liked the part about Garrett being the color. Yeah, that was that was a good little line. And then Garrett goes in for like the elaborate handshake with Bill and he was a little fumbly with it. The guy they were making fun of, he was the broadcaster. Uh, his name was Dandy Don Meredith. Uh, next musical break is Leo Sayers' You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. And this got a Grammy for the best R&B single in 1978. Number one. Can, you, can we take a quick pause there? What a crime. <laughs> yeah, that, that ain't right. <laughs> 
Like, I didn't I mean, know the Grammys lacked legitimacy, legitimacy this far back. And, yeah, he got the Grammy for it, and it hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Um, I said 78. It might have been 77. I, I don't know, but I think it was 78. Sayer does this in uh, multiple registers. One is quintessential 70s, but it's the 70s I'm less inclined to like. I'm not much of a dancer either. Uh, this is very shallow lyrics. It's it's a well-known song. You still hear it on the radio today. No, I mean, people like this. I don't. I'm still baffled by the, uh, the, the R&B Grammy. This man has neither rhythm nor blues. Like... <laughs> just, just, just not existent like the the way he's dancing i mean it's impressive to see him hitting the different registers like the way he can seamlessly bounce from from one register to another is, is was something but other than that and I'm, I'm 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 okay on this if we could have something else please just uh i mean just to throw on the pile Terrible performer, in my opinion, Leo Sayer. This is uh, so in 1977, as I mentioned, we're really in the uh, the throes of disco. This is definitely a song that's written for a good disco cash in. And that's really all it is. You know, th- there's a reason why this stuff doesn't age well, because it was never really good in the first place. We now go to a Gary Weiss film, and he goes to Small Worlds. It's a, I believe, New York-based company that sets up enclosures and terrariums for unique pets, such as frogs, iguanas, and such. There's a man and a woman there showing off some of their, uh, some of their pets. A frog that says hello. There's a, a corn snake. Lots of shots of animals. Uh, this, to me, was about halfway between the, the joke shop lady, who I adored, and the boring swimmer, swimming lady, who I, I didn't particularly like. This was probably, you know, around the, the, the comedy club uh, level of interest for me. As far as Gary Weiss films go, definitely not his worst, but definitely not his best. There are two things that I'm a big fan of. Animals. I just, I go watch nature documentaries all day. And people who are slightly odd and dedicate their lives to an extraordinarily specific thing. So I thoroughly enjoyed this. And that bullfrog man, you know, he was stealing the show the whole time he was on camera. I I was a big fan. I, I enjoyed this okay. You know, I generally like the the Gary Weiss weirdos. That's uh that's his thing, and I generally like it. This was not his best. This was not his worst. You know what I was thinking about when I was watching it? What does he have to bring to the show for them to be like, nah, this is too weird? <laughs> I think he's testing it, to be honest. He seems to be. He's just he's out there doing he's whatever he wants. He's turning in these randos on the street, you know, talking about whatever. I, I don't. I don't even know if he at this point he probably doesn't need to provide artistic justification. He has the, you know, he's got the contract. Here's my film. You put it on the show. Uh, I'm sure if it was ridiculous enough, there'd be some pushback. But you know, because it's all it's all very safe for work. It's all very G-rated. Uh, well, for the most part. Last week, softcore porn with Garrett's ex. <laughs> Stripping to night moves. I kind of hope that Gary just turns these things in and nobody watches them till they're on air. Probably. I think it's as part of the fun for them, too, maybe. Just uh, <laughs> ride by the seat of the pants, see what he did this week. Ooh. So after the segment, uh, Tarkenton holds a tarantula, which bites him and he throws it. It's obviously a fake one. Then we go to a commercial for French Liquid, and this is the only sketch I could get a writer credit for, and it was written by Michael O'Donohue. And it's uh, there's a long lineup of women waiting for a French perfume at a makeup counter. And it's a new perfume that smells differently on each person, and it goes through the list, and the smells uh, range from wildflowers to, like, rabbit pellets and disgusting stuff. I was looking at this lineup, and it's, it's, it's a lot of beautiful women, and... 
then it clicked in that uh, I think all of these women are actually on the uh, SNL staff. Yeah, nice, nice place to work, I suppose. And I may have seen future featured player Yvonne Hudson in the line, who I think was actually a receptionist at that point. I could be wrong. It wasn't a very good shot. So what did you think of French liquid? I thought it was pretty damn funny. Uh, I love the concept, but this perfume was making every woman smell different. And some of them, it's fantastic. And some of them, it's absolutely vile. <laughs> As they went down the line, I, I was giggling a little more at everyone. I, I, this was a big hit for me. I loved it. Yeah, the way they contrasted the like self-serious like French model posing and look on each lady as it got grosser and weirder uh, I thought was just a really good combo and it's just a perfect use of this kind of idea you know sometimes the, the skits are just uh, over long and draggy and sometimes they just nail it with these little little bites uh, I thought this was was bang on next up we go to um, more music actually and I should have mentioned this earlier but it's Donnie Harper and the voices of tomorrow and they're a gospel group I think they were based out of New Jersey they do a really nice version of the uh, Sesame Street Sing, Sing a Song song. <laughs> I couldn't find too much about the group. I know that Donnie Harper later goes on to do some stuff or organize the New Jersey Mass Choir. And he later collaborated with Foreigner on uh, I Want to Know What Love Is. I preferred this to Leo Sayer. I could have had two or three of this group performing instead of him. You know, I'm not a gospel fan, but... This is more the sort of stuff I would like to see on Saturday Night Live. It was just, I don't, I don't know. I know the song. I remember from when I was a kid and I thought they did a really solid version of it. I thought this was uh, great. I really enjoyed this. The, the just pure like joy radiating out of the lead singer's smile while they were going to, like you could hear his smile in the singing. I, I thought this was really lovely. Definitely a good performance. Definitely an improvement from uh, Leo. Musically, I, I think it's pretty late 70s AM rock fair. I didn't think there was anything special about the music. But yeah, sure, an infectious performance. But my, my biggest issue was don't be out here trying to tell me that SNL is so regularly trying to feature these like out of the blue players. Uh, I, I didn't like that thrown in there. You sell it however you got it, though, I guess. Yeah, I thought that was weird, too, when he introduced it like... A big pat on the back to SNL for for being this cutting edge showcase, and I'm like, really? I haven't, I haven't seen anyone I haven't heard of before, aside from yeah, oh, what was that jazz band, the Heritage Jazz Band? Oh, the the the, the, the Preservation New Hall Jazz Band. Yeah, yeah, those guys. Those are the only guys I've seen so far watching these episodes, and, and they. they and they certainly weren't young and I mean, I loved their performance, but they weren't young and up and coming. I mean, <laughs> our last sketch is the credit card and it's Gilda in her second appearance as the uh, quote unquote Jewish American princess character, Rhonda Weiss. And she's there with uh, Jane Curtin, who's playing Barbara, who I think is a bank assistant and who's cutting off Rhonda's credit card. The pair start arguing about the best sales they've ever gotten on silk blouses. They then compare it to uh, having issues with bloating and cramps, and they're really trying to keep one upping one another. This is a commentary of, you know, on the way New York Jewish women talk, but this totally could have been my Eastern Canadian Catholic aunt and her friends. They did well here. I, I got a lot of smiles out of it. Probably didn't laugh too much, but I, I did enjoy this. Oh, yeah. I was having flashbacks to being a kid in a kitchen thick with cigarette smoke and the smell of tea. As ladies tried to 
outdo each other on the the best thing they picked up at the flea market that week. So this felt very real to me. And yeah, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of bust out laughs, but the whole thing, just the performances and and, and the build on it, they, they did a good job creeping like, heightening the contradictions or whatever, like building up the, the, the tension um, with, with outdoing each other. And uh, yeah, I thought this was well done and, and a nice, like coming towards the end, cool down sketch. Three for three here. I thought these ladies killed it. Their performances were awesome. They, they looked the part, they acted the part. The one upsmanship uh, was on point, as you guys said. And yeah, again, killer performances from the not ready for primetime players. Mark's right. It was it was a good last sketch. It's not your hot open, but uh, I mean it's clever and they're so good and it's you know you tuck it right in there. It's one of what was one of the highlights of the show for me. You know, I I was watching and I was thinking we don't get to see Jane and Gilda work together very often, but when they do, I mean it's usually quite good. I was I, I was immediately flashed back to one of your favorites, Matt, the uh, sleepover. No, I was thinking the household dominatrix. Oh, that one was good, too. They were also good in the sleepover. I was yeah, thinking yeah, the sleepover yeah. one myself, actually, yeah. Yeah, they they always uh, they always work well together, and we don't see it as often as I probably like. So we go to a Chiron. This person lost interest at 11.31, and then we go right to the good nights, and there's no audible goodbyes. It's just uh, Bill Murray, Garrett Morris, and Dan Aykroyd are dressed as kind of shipwrecked pirates or something, and they're trying to lift Tarkenton up and swing him around. And then everybody except Lorraine, Jane, and Tarkenton uh, run off the stage, and they're gone. No thank you or anything. They must have been short on time, and, and they were just really just fucking around for a couple seconds. Yeah, it definitely looked like Bill and Garrett and them were, were dressed for a skit. It looked like there was still supposed to be another skit and then the goodbyes, and all of a sudden, like, holy crap. What time is it? And just had to shut it down real quick. I wouldn't put it past those guys, too, to just find something in the prop room and say, let's just wear this <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Because I know right now, if the three of us had that option, we would do that. Hey, look, three matching Matador pirate costumes. You know? <laughs> yeah. So now we'll go to the uh, rating and the epilogue here. So for the host, Fran Tarkenton was flat. This is to be expected to be compared to the politicos who were here, he was actually more animated and I found far more enjoyable as a host. They didn't let him stray too far from himself, though, which on the surface seems like a good thing. But oftentimes the best part of these shows with these odd celebrities are when they're in a goofy situation as somebody who is far from themselves. Now, as far as the material he was given, he did fine, um, but it was all football related. Uh, I'm not a football fan. We're also coming off a couple of weaker episodes. You know, we had Ralph Nader two episodes ago. We had Ruth Gordon, which, though I enjoyed it, it wasn't without its issues. Um, I think it's time for them to call in a ringer. And just to give a little epilogue on Tarkenton, he re- um, when he left the NFL, he went on to do quite well for himself. He got into the Football Hall of Fame of, in 86. And he also, in the early 80s, got into the software industry and seems to have made his major big sellouts years before the big busts. And he still dabbles when he can. I read somewhere that Tarkenton and his people were so smart with his money that he could have retired in 71 and been set for life off his football money alone. And then to get into software in the early 80s, uh, Fran Tarkenton is not starving anywhere. So how did he do for you guys? You know, it's it's tough to say whether I would have liked to see him to your, like you said, play some different things. You know, put him as a, a waiter in a sketch. Do more with him than just have him be him. We talked 
about the fact that they they did a good job kind of framing this episode for him. But it turns out at the end of the episode, at least for me, that uh, they, they really kind of boxed him in. I think it's possible that he could have gone out there and done something uh, a little sillier. Uh, he seemed to be game for whatever they had for him based on some of the lines he delivered. So I don't think there was a lot of resistance backstage. At least not that's not the impression I get. And in my opinion, it was a mistake. I think it could have been better, but don't get me wrong. I still, this does nothing but add to my evidence log that these people should not host the show. Yeah, compared to the other non-entertainer uh, when I was here for Ron Nesson, he knocked it out of the park. But that's a real low bar to clear. For a non-entertainer, he did pretty well. And for an athlete, I had I had really low expectations. Overall, solid C+. So he seemed like a likable guy. Yeah, I don't think it's all on him. Like like Matt was saying, if they had tried him out in some other sketches, I think he, he could have done a lot more. Just felt really one note by the end. And yeah, he, he did seem like he, he would try and could pull off other stuff. Yeah, when they get these guys to do something really weird, it, it's not always good, but at least it's memorable. So the music, uh, this was Leo Sayer's peak, and he had a, a really good run for a, a little bit there. His last album was released in 2019 called Selfie. So this music is not at all for me. I usually say it's not for me, but I'm going to stress it a little harder by saying not at all for me. It's the 70s I don't like to listen to. It's the 70s I'm not really that interested in. The songs were popular, but I can't say I enjoyed them. I did enjoy the Donnie Harper stuff, though. I have to throw that in. Um, I, I really liked that. Leo Sayer sucks. That uh, final bit was fine, but I really think it's... Uh, I don't like three songs, and it was a little too 70s AM radio for me. I don't know. The tune wasn't memorable. Like, I'm sitting here, I watched it today, and I can barely remember the melody. Shit like that's not a hit for a reason. Ooh, that when they made that joke about ABC, I was like... For, come on, guys, like Leo Sayer and your cracking jokes uh, wasn't right. The music's not right. I don't like it. Not only is it not my cup of tea, it feels wrong for the show. A little too boring. I wasn't a big fan. Uh, that, that third performance um, was was nice. But yeah, it is a little AM radio for your, your live comedy show that you're watching late on a Saturday night, perhaps after you've come home from being out and, and doing fun, exciting things. Uh, I want to see something with a little more life in it. So uh, what was the worst sketch of the night? Well, whatever that halftime show was. Yeah, yeah, didn't care for that at all. Some tasteless things in there, uh, a lot of flat stuff, and the, the whole football theme was just so played out by then. I uh, I was not having it. My, my least favorite sketch, definitely the uh, yeah, L- Lorraine and uh, Fran in bed, calling the timeout with Belushi. Uh, I'm really checked out at that point and was pissed that they went there again. And I'm sorry, Lorraine. It was just too good. It was it was too real-life annoying. Yeah, you know, I was torn between those two, but I did go with Grandstand. In a lot of ways, the performances were not, uh, were not there either, where at least Lorraine was good and Tarkenton was trying. But, uh, yeah, Garrett and Bill were not good. The material sucked. And it was all over the place in general. So what was your best sketch of the night? I really liked the uh, the perfume commercial. I thought uh, it, was, it was just weird and silly enough to make me laugh as it got worse as they went down. And maybe it was just because of all the unfamiliar faces 
uh, that made it seem a little fresher. I don't know, but uh, they really got me with that one. Yeah, that that one was super enjoyable. Uh, but I think I gotta go with the the steroid cereal commercial. It was just it had the most big laughs for me. Um, for such a tight, quick little thing, there was a lot of good good skits and moments to choose from tonight. But I think that's the one I'm going with. You and I are drinking the same Kool-Aid tonight, Mark. Uh, I also went with uh, anabolic steroids. Uh, I got the impression Tarkenton was at his most comfortable there. And the reveal of Jane with the beard, that was the biggest laugh for me tonight. Just to see a top athlete of the day pushing a cereal, uh, sugar-coated steroids. Uh, It's so funny from a a lot of different perspectives, really. Who was your star of the night? Jane Curtin. Loved her throughout the show. Everything she was in, she killed the credit card sketch weekend update was awesome she had that bit in the steroid sketch she screamed her war cry at the beginning real good jane episode for me two thumbs up surprised you didn't give it three thumbs up matt Uh, (laughs) no uh i'd like to give an honorable mention to the bullfrog from the gary weiss film but i i gotta completely agree with you matt this was this was all jane all day she she nailed it for three lads, I went with Jane. I, I thought she was uh, head and shoulders, although Lorraine did have some real strong points. The teacher, the sexy interludes, good, you know, good performance of crappy material. Barbara in in the credit card and even these in the Alsatian restaurant or the Alsatian chef's home, her reactions to what was going on in the kitchen and, and the bearded wife. And it was all good. I actually did a little fist pump when I heard she went three for three. Jane's first sweep, yeah. Okay, overall, regardless of anything else, weak host and a musical guest that didn't fit and didn't do it for me. There's some good points throughout, but there's almost nothing in here where a whole sketch was was good top to bottom and nothing wrong. The shorter bits tonight were better, and I think more than any episode we've seen in a while, the performances in general were better than the material. By and large, I think the show gambled by putting all of its eggs in this Fran Tarkenton basket. And, and you know, it, it had its moments, but uh, overall, it, it's a losing show for me. I gave this one a 4 out of 10. I'm uh, a little slightly kinder than you, I guess, uh, and only because of the not ready for primetime players. I really think the cast brought every bit of energy and focus they had to the show. The jokes weren't always there. The host was kind of a dud. The musical guest was an absolute dud. There was not enough ideas for Fran, but uh, on the strength of the not ready for primetime players, I gave it a 5 out of 10. Oof. I, uh, I totally agree on the host and the musical guest. I did think there was a lot of solid short sketches tonight, which kind of saves it for me. Like the the French liquid, the the steroids, uh, the Swiss Army gun. These were all hits. Yeah, I I feel like there was good momentum, even though there was some times where it just veered completely off the road. So I'm gonna give it a six. So Matt's five, my four, and Mark's six averages this one out at five. And the Internet Movie Database gave this one a six point seven which is fairly close to our our old exchange rate here. They ranked it as the 20th best show of the season, 417th best show uh, to date. That sound about right to you guys? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, the material, the host, and the music being weak, but I do feel like there is a a level of confidence in the performance from the primetime players that I haven't seen up until now. And and I did kind of note that, and maybe that's why I was a little more generous in my rating. So, uh, yeah, um, thanks for joining us again, Mark. It's been a pleasure having you back on board. Always a pleasure to join you guys on a Saturday night. Uh, are you aware of who's going to be with us next week? I'm not. So next week we have uh, returning host Steve Martin. Oh. And a uh, British band known as The Kinks. Oh, that sounds like it's going to be a fun episode. And Christine will be joining us for that one. Christine we haven't spoken to since Madeline Kahn. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to hearing this episode. That sounds fantastic. So Matt, thanks again. I'll see you in about a week. Sounds great. Take care. But until then, for your entertainment pleasure, our daughter Francine will play as a recorder for you here in Essen Hell.